The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. chapter 8. And as we come to this, it is our study that we've uh, left off after a couple weeks. And uh, we are going through and going through verse by verse. If you're visiting with us, if it's been a couple weeks, we are here to make much of Christ. That's what we're here to do. We've been in a months-long study of the book of Hebrews since the first Sunday of January. Save a few weeks here and there. We are ending another chapter today, church. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You are getting closer to the end, albeit the longer chapters ahead. If you ever ran track before or you were an athlete and you had two-a-days or you were a band person, they said, oh, we're going to do one more, and it's 100-degree heat. The finish line's coming, but you got to go down and back a few more times, okay? We're getting there. But I want you to know as we study where we're at today, we are on the heels of a summary passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago. If you missed that sermon, go online, tirebkc.com. But if you, uh, you're here for that, you will recall that chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, was basically a summary of everything he had done to this point. And I want to remind you that the writer of Hebrews, unknown as he is, is writing to a group of Jewish Christians being persecuted for their faith. Persecuted in the sense, maybe not for their lives, but for a decision. Am I truly going all in for Jesus Christ? Is he all in? Is, does the buck stop with him? Is he better, greater, superior overall? Or is he just another link in a chain with all the Old Testament sacrifices? And these people had to make a real decision. Am I really going to hang on to what was before, or am I going to go all in for Christ? And this morning, we're going to pick that up in verse 6, but I want to also remind you that this was written before the fall of the temple at Jerusalem, probably in the early 60s in the first century. And that's significant, and I don't mention this often, that's significant to you, because these Jews who he's writing to can look out, as it were, in Jerusalem and see all the animals being sacrificed. So everything they are being told right now is being brought before them, and everything they are being told right now is being put before them. Thank you, brother. Mm -hmm. When Nelson is gone, our technology for live stream quality goes down. And so this is us doing it as we can. Thank you. So if you have that in mind, will you join me in standing this morning in Hebrews chapter 8? We're going to read verses 7 through 13. I want to tell you, your Bible will probably be quoting a lot of verses. You'll see them in italics or a little, uh, little less structured paragraph. That is a quote from Jeremiah 31. We'll get there. But I want to pick it up in verse 6 and start going down as we do. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For verse 7, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been an occasion to look for a second. For he, that is God, finds fault with them, the Israelites, when he says, quote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed the, them no concern, declares the Lord. For this, verse 10, is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. 
I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards the iniquities, towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let me tell you what we're not going to do today. We don't have time to go into all the study of the covenants today. That is a study of studies, if you ever want to do that. We are hitting the mountaintops today. But I would encourage you, and I'll send out some links later today, to read through if you're on Facebook or email with us some of the links about what the covenants are. A covenant is an agreement between two people. In this case, God with man. In this case, God speaking at Mount Sinai with Moses. But it's being fulfilled right now. The old has gone, the new has come. That old phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, guess what? It was broke, and it needed a whole lot of fixing. And Jesus came to stir it up right to get it perfectly made. And that's what we're here to talk about today. We bow your heads with me as we pray. Let's go before the Lord. Father, as we come to you, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be known by you, to be heard by you, to hear your words. Father, we celebrated our nation's birthday this last week, and we continue to pray for our nation that we would know the truth of the gospel. And in knowing the truth of the gospel, that we would know you better, more fully, and more capably through the power of your spirit. For any of those in this room or the sound of my voice online or off, that would hear this word that have yet to come to Jesus. Father, may this be the day, the day of the Lord of repentance, for today is the day of salvation. We pray this and ask in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, you know that uh, uh, promises are a, a thing, and promises are always around. All kinds of people make promises. It seems that the more promises are made by politicians in these days than anyone else, and if you raise money for them, they promise to give you the highest heavens and everything you ever wanted. They will give you all you wanted for. Then there's companies. How many contracts and agreements do companies break? and lose billions for because they don't want to fulfill the promise that they told you about in, in their times. Now to speak of ourselves. Too often we find people who are unreliable. Oh, I'll be there to fix that thing, and that person never shows up. At our house, we are doing a lot of renovation work at our house right now, and we had a company lined up to do renovation. We're going to get to you, we're going to get to you, we're going to get to you. Seven months later, uh, yeah, it'll be next month, it'll be next month, it'll be next month. Reliability is a really hard thing to find because people break promises. What about marriages? Most people, if not every one of us, has entered into a marriage, to a marriage vow, a covenant, and the terms that were read to us by the pastor at that point or the civil magistrate was, until death do us part. And yet we know that if the stats hold true, that one out of every two professing Christians will divorce their spouse sometime before. And there are obviously situations with each of those, but the point is, we often are in a place where we don't keep our promises. But praise God, God keeps his promises, amen? God relates to his people through promises. He has made most of those promises through covenants, those agreements that we talked about. God made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Moses. And in it, God promises blessing and prosperity to Israel if they will but follow him. Like a parent, if you do this, you get this. If you don't do this, well, you'll get that. But even in the Old Testament, we find references to the New Testament, to something coming later and better. And that is that Christ would come. Now before, you may have read that passage. We'll unpack this in a minute, but I want you to get this. 
What we are not saying today is that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament system is what we're referring to, was a mistake. Like God just said, whoa, what did I do? How did I ever come up with this uh, bag of mess? No, it wasn't the faithlessness of God. It was the faithlessness of people that broke the covenant. God will never let you go. And God will never let go of his word. God perfectly held his word. But the people were like, woo, woo, woo. Men the world's of fun yet this year? Don't ride roller coasters. They make you sick. That's just a PSA. But Israel did. And they did this and this and this and this. And they broke the covenant. But even despite that, God said, I will bring you greater news. So this morning, as we look at our big idea, and Andy will put that up for us, the big idea is this. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament age, in the new era of Christ, God did not relax his standards. In fact, he expanded his transforming grace. Where we fell short time and time and time again, God said, oh, by the way, I'm going to give you more grace. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so as we come to this time, I want you to know and remember that these promises we are looking at today, we are going to see five or six promises why the new covenant is superior or better than or more excellent, depending on your translation, than the old covenant. You ready? If you're taking notes, you're visiting with us, you can take notes. We, we're like an old high school class. You can even fill in the blank and impress your friends, right? You can do that at the end. The first point, first promise, why this is a new testament is better than the old, or new covenant rather, is better than the old covenant, is the promise of Jesus. Look back at verse 6. You see that there. And this phrase is very intentional by the author. He's changing the direction. He's changing everything. He says in verse 6, but as it is Christ. Stop right there. You can bank your life on those words. But as it is Christ, or Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, whatever you want to call him, what was the only prophesied and longed for and promised in the Old Testament has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse Chapter 1, verse 2. Will you go there with me? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. It's good exercise for your fingers and keeps your attention. So if you go back there to chapter 1, verse 2. It's been months since we preached on this. Six months to the day almost. But the writer of the Hebrews, when he started the book of Hebrews, tells us of the promise, starting in verse 1, that was to come. He says, Hebrews 1, 1 and following, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by a priest. Nope. By a pastor. Nope. By a prophet. Nope. By his son, through whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. You can go back to chapter 8. The first promise that the reason the New Testament, New Covenant rather, is greater than the Old Covenant is that Christ has now come. In these last days, the words of Jesus are the words of the Creator and the heir of all things. Nothing is more worthy of our attention, church, than the words of Christ. Now that does not mean, I, can, I, can I chase a rabbit for a second? There are some people who don't like those red letter Bibles, do you know what I mean? Where the words of Jesus are in red because they seem to emphasize the words of Jesus more than all the Scripture. Friends, the Word of God is the same Word of God from front to back. Whether you have a red-letter edition or something else, the words of Christ are the Word of God, just like everything else that's in there. But we should especially pay attention when Jesus says, Behold, or he who has ears, let him hear. The cry of every parent, right? you got an ear, listen up, buddy. And here it is. But Jesus is the Savior of the world. And Andy will put this up. Without Jesus, without Jesus in the New Covenant age, 
God himself would not give us what we have. But in the new covenant age, God is now at a point where he hates any religion that does not have Jesus at its center. Can I just speak a clear word here today? You cannot keep the Old Testament law and hang on to Jesus and still be considered a Christian. The Jewish law has been abrogated, guys. But now, as it is with Christ, that means every church activity we do, if Christ is not the center of what we do, it doesn't really mean much. We're just a good moral club. Christ has to be at the center of your life, of your marriage, of your parenting, of your, your job, of your church, of every relationship that you have. Christ has to be at the center. Jesus changes everything. He changed you, didn't he? So much so that you now have a new life. The first promise, the reason that the Old Covenant is lesser than the New is because Christ has come on the scene and when Jesus comes, it all changes. You better believe it. Why would we not love and serve Him then with everything we are? Because if we have a church or a mission or an organization that does not make much of Christ, then we have not much of anything. That is the first promise, is that the promise of Jesus. The second promise of why the New Covenant is better than the Second is the promise of a better covenant. The promise of a better covenant. I think I put these in the wrong order, and I apologize to you for that. The second one is a promise of a better covenant. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 tells you, did you notice that in your Bible? It's a better ministry, a better covenant, and a better promise. Look back at verse 7. He says, after saying that statement, he says that the, he, the old is, he mediates, is better, excuse me, verse 6, since it is enacted on better promises. It is enacted on better promises. Better promises how? Because Christ has obtained a ministry. Well, how did he obtain the ministry? Well, friends, we talked about that in Hebrews before. He obtained a ministry because God the Father uh, commissioned him out to go into the world. That was before time. There's now a better covenant. It says in verse 6 that by as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant. In other words, what Christ had called people to before has now gone away, so much so that what is enacted in Christ is now better, it's superior to what was before. Why? Because there are better promises. The end of verse 6, which has been enacted on better promises. Because Christ has come, everything that we have has changed. Everything about who we are has changed. And I want to remind you today, church, there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Richard Green, wherever you are, I think of you with this verse every step of the way. Because Richard quotes this to me all the time, and I love him for it. That means a priest cannot stand before God for you. That's why you don't confess your sins to me as a pastor. So no one can stand before you and God. You go one-on-one -on -one with God, and the only way you get before God in a way that is free of sin is to go through Christ himself. That's it. But in those days, these Christians who were struggling, do I hold on to the old? Do I hold on to Christ? They needed to hear this. They needed to hear that in Christ there was a better everything. Not just a little bit better. Not just, oh man, if you buy, you know that old phrase, if you buy cheap, you're going to die cheap or something like that. If you buy the off-brand, you're going to die by the off-brand. I, I don't know about you, all these still taste the same. All these Frosted Flakes still taste the same as Kellogg's Frosted Flakes to me. I don't know, whatever it is for you, okay. But if you're going to buy something, you buy it right. You should, right? If you have the money and opportunity to do so, you pay the money a little up front to get it right. 
We're not talking about just a little bit product here and to pay a little bit more money there. We're talking about Jesus demolishing everything else so much so there is no comparison to him. And you need to pray that in your life because so many idols can creep into your life unaware that you forget how great it is. I'm going to pick on Brother Jeff in the back because before church, Jeff and I joke a lot. I I put him on the spot. I didn't tell him I say this, but he pulled me aside. I didn't know if I was going to get a baseball stat or a joke because we know... I haven't seen him in two weeks, and he's got to get to me, and I have to rip him out. But, Jeff, I appreciate what you said. It really focused me this morning. He looked at me and said, can you believe that every sin from Adam until now, God said, I will forgive all those sins. And Jeff and I both took our hands and went, why is Jesus better? Because he's the only one that can take your sin from as far as the east is from the west. And that should blow your mind every time. Have you lost the wonder of what it is that you've been forgiven of your sin? He has a better ministry, a better promise, and a better everything. Jesus' work in you is complete. The work for you is complete. Rather, the work in you is incomplete. Hang along for the ride. You have been saved, Christian, but let me remind you that you are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ every day that you're here on this earth. Some days look better than others, amen? Amen. But by grace we carry on. By grace we carry on. All who are in Christ share in the new covenant because the promises of the new covenant are settled in him. Let's go to the third promise. The third promise. This is found in verses 7 to 9. And any of you can go and switch it over. The problem, I must have been off this morning. Somehow, all these got off. I did this early this morning. Forgive me. Um, as we go on, the next promise should be the promise of God's grace. You're there now. But I want to tell you, if you're taking notes, somehow, anyway, somehow all this got off, and that is okay. But look at verse 7. I want you to see the promise of God's grace. He says in verse 7, he says, Whereas the first covenant had been faultless, There would be no occasion to look for the second. You need to remember that when that old covenant was made on Mount Sinai with Moses, that everything God gave them was perfectly from God's hand. There is a quote-unquote pastor named Anley Stanley at Cross Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, Charles Stanley's son, who says that the Old Testament... The Old Testament wasn't necessary. We don't need it anymore because God is a God who teaches one thing there and is different in the New Testament. He won't go as far as that, but he'll basically frame it that way. That is hogwash. Every time you preach the Old Testament, you beeline to Jesus Christ. And verse 7 tells you that Christ is here. Be very careful. If you listen to Amway Stanley, run for the high hills. I don't care if his dad is Charles Stanley and he's on every TV station. It doesn't, the apple fought, fell very, very, very far from that tree. And I need to warn you about that. He's a great communicator, but just because you communicate great doesn't mean what you communicate is God's truth. Verse 7 says that for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for the second. What is he saying here? He's saying that first off, that we've already seen that, 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 that in the Old Testament you could not be perfect through the sacrifices. Remember that in the Old Testament, it was by faith you were saved, not by what you do. The Levitical priesthood could not bring perfection. The law made no one perfect, and therefore it was annulled due to its weakness, and it was inadequate. And he says that in this time, that these animals and sacrifices were not enough to continue on with what God had done in Christ. It's done away with. It's no more. 
But I want you to know those people in the Old Testament, they fulfilled the law to the best they could because that's what God asked them to do. And again, I'm going to say it. God did not make a mistake in sending the law. The law is what brought you to Christ. If you're a Christian here today, how did you come to know Jesus Christ? Well, someone told me the gospel. They did. But what did they tell you first? Hopefully they told you the bad news first. The bad news is, is if you sin one time, you're guilty of breaking the whole law, James says. The law, Galatians says, was like a tutor to us. And God did not find fault with his covenant. Romans 7.12 says, therefore the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and just and good. The problem was not with the law. The problem was with us sinners, always. You know, so much, we've talked about this before, but so many times we say if we just get the right people in office and we legislate the right laws, then our country's going to turn around. Oh, no, it won't. People will turn around when they come to know Jesus Christ. People will turn around when they see that their sin is so deep that only God himself coming to earth can rescue them from what they have fallen into. And so you need to be reminded of that today. That is by grace through faith that Christ has saved you. It is by grace through faith that he has called you to be his own. And verses 8 and 9 starts the quotation from Jeremiah 31. And in Jeremiah 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming when I'll establish a new covenant. Well, who was the covenant for? Well, was it for Israel only? Was God working only with a physical, national Israel? No. Was God's work only for Gentiles? No. God's work was for all people everywhere. Well, then how did the Jews miss that the Gentiles were part of God's plan? I don't know. But you're saved in Christ because God opened the floodgates. Guys, the gospel is all over the Old Testament. And he says he'll make a covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. Not like the covenant he made with his fathers, he says in verse 9, where he brought them out, where they showed no concern but a covenant that would come to show all people that he is truly God. Guys, that's why we believe the gospel's for everyone, isn't it? Red, yellow, black, or white, they are all precious in his sight. That's why racism stands no chance against the gospel. That's why we stand and we support all people everywhere. That's why it's funny when you get into our nation's discussions these days, oh, you Christians don't care for my rights. I do care for your rights. You have zero rights before God. Because you are stripped bare, and we're giving you a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the biggest choice that you need to make. Well, I'm pro-choice. Okay, you have one choice. You can go to heaven and accept Christ, or reject him and go to hell forever. What choice do you want to make? Because it was not with the God of the covenant that was the problem. God promised the new covenant. It was the people of the world that were the problem. I've heard pastors say before, and I love you all to the hilt. He'll hear me on this. But ministry would so, be so easy, pastors often say, if people just weren't around. Okay. Your job would be so easy if you work with people, if you didn't have to work with people, right? Well, God works with people, and even though he knows who we are, he still takes us in. Amen? And that is the ultimate thing we have. And I apologize again for the slides. Uh, anyway, you're going to get through it, and I'm going to get through it. But that is the third promise. The fourth promise is this, and it's not going to say that. It should say, Andy, the promise of internal change. Do you have that there? The promise of internal change. He's brought us Jesus. He's brought us grace. He's brought us a better covenant. But fourthly, he has promised internal change. No, this isn't your annual checkup. No, this isn't your heart doctor. 
This is internal change in the spiritual variety. Look at verse 10. He's laid them bare in verses 8 and 9, but in verse 10 he says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I, notice the I here, God speaking, I will put my law into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The law of Moses declared God as a holy standard. Sinful people need a new heart and a new mind. Laws themselves cannot change a heart. You can go read Ezekiel 36, the same, and the same regard. When a sinner trusts in Christ, there is a new nature given to him or to her. The divine nature creates a desire to love and obey God. It creates a desire to want to follow God with all that we are. The law, the old covenant, was external. You could look as pretty as you could as a Jew or as a God-fearing Gentile, and people would say, Whoa! How is he so holy? How is she so holy? But Jesus would say the same thing that he said to the Pharisees. You look great on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Pastor, surely that would never happen in churches too. You know it does, and I know it does. I don't need to say anything more. Sometimes we put on the face to make people think we're holy when really we're just we're running away from God. Don't be there. Don't do that. The new covenant makes it possible now for God's word to be written on human minds and human hearts. We call that, and you see that on the screen, we call that regeneration. Regeneration. What that means is, is that God's grace makes it, it, makes it possible for transformation for you to have a heart of stone to now have a heart of flesh. To have a heart that is only on the outside reformed, to now have a person, a will, an emotion, everything you are, a soul, be completely changed. God has changed who you are. That's regeneration. You cannot regenerate a heart by simply giving them laws. You cannot regenerate a heart simply by following the law. In fact, it's unfortunate too many Christians think they're saved by grace but have to keep the Old Testament law. Be careful, Christian, that you do not allow Old Testament practices to seep into what you believe is necessary in a Christ-like life. This could be festivals. This could be a lot of things. We do not become holy people by trying to obey God's law in our own power. We become holy people by yielding to the Holy Spirit within that we fulfill the righteousness of the law, Romans 8, and holy by grace. Andy, you can go ahead and put up the next thing. After creation, God said, it is finished. God said, excuse me, it is finished, and he rested. After redemption on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, and we can rest too. Christian, we mentioned this a lot in Hebrews, but it bears repeating. If you are trying to impress God with how holy you are, then you've missed what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't need to impress him. He wasn't impressed before. He's not going to be impressed again. The only impressionable thing about us is that God would allow us to be his. When he looks at you, he sees Christ. Don't try and win your salvation over again. Christ won it once for all, and he did it for you. You walk with Christ, you walk with the Spirit, you obey the Father, the Blessed Trinity, but in doing so, you're not winning brownie points with God. All that was finished when he said, it is done. I mean, guys, just again, think about this. There are people in, in, in places around Kansas City right now who are saying Hail Marys, who are rubbing, rubbing rosary beads, who are in Baptist churches walking down aisles, 
who are in Mormon tabernacles trying to get to the, the, the whitest of rooms at the very top of that very pretty but vain temple. All for one thing, that they would be accepted by God. And all you had to do by God's grace is repent of your sins and trust in Him and you are fully accepted by God. Salvation is not so easy a caveman could do it. But I will tell you this. Salvation is so straightforwardly simple that you'd be a, a complete crazy person not to accept it. Because it is that simple. He died for you. He loves you. And only he can change your heart. That's the promise of eternal change. The next promise is the promise of relationship. Look at verse 11. The promise of relationship. He says... And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You get God. You have a relationship with God. You get to know the God of the universe. How cool is that? It's not as cool as whatever video may be popular on TikTok or YouTube or your social media platform. It not may be as cool in the world's eyes as, as the greatest uh, uh, millionaire. What, you know, this millionaire got married. It's Hollywood dying a slow death. You get that feel too. I really don't care who marries who anymore. I really don't care what they're wearing at some gala. If you do and that's your hobby, okay, fine. But who cares? I don't care if the Chiefs are predicted to win the Super Bowl. I don't care if my prediction the Royals were going to win the World Series never comes to be. I don't care. We get Christ. We get Christ. And we get a relationship. They shall all know the Lord. Do you know what the whole purpose of your life is? Is to know the Lord. The whole purpose of your job in this world is, is to make much of Him. To know the Lord. Yes, love your spouse. Yes, love your kids. Yes, do your job well in your retirement. Whatever you are right now, do it well to the glory of God. But this is it. You get a relationship with God. Literally, there are people around the world who would slit your throat to have a relationship with God if that could promise such a thing. And yet we sit in our pews in our, our offices and we forget how blessed we really are, church. You know Christ. You have it all. There's nothing greater than Him. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed to this. Andy, if you want to put it up, go ahead. Every believer has a personal relationship with Christ, but it is not a private one. We must be public with it. I've watched it for years, and I'm not a marketing or a statistician. I'm just a, a weird guy with a phone. But every Easter from about Good Friday till about Sunday afternoon, about 4 o'clock, you know what people post on Facebook? He's risen. Yay, Jesus is risen from the dead. It is finished. Woo, woo, woo. Then after that, we kind of flatline until Christmas again. Oh, praise the Lord. Jesus is born again. Oh, he's born again. I didn't know that. But it, all these things. We talk about Christ when it's convenient when everyone else is talking about Christ. Have you ever noticed that? And I'm guilty as charged as well. Church, if you really believe that your relationship is promised in the new covenant is greater than the old, then you want to talk about it over and over and over. I've never met a mama who hasn't wanted to talk about her baby. Or daddy. Yes, Luke, I see you with the baby. <laughs> I've never met anyone who's thrilled or excited or enthralled about something, whatever their hobby is, to not want to talk about it. 
do we want to talk about Christ more than we talk about anything else? I'm not asking you to be a weird guy, like, you know, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. Don't be one of those guys that just, you have to, you have to talk real talk sometimes. You have, it's okay to talk about the weather. It's okay to talk about, hey, how, how are we going to pay this bill? You, well, I'm just going to talk about Jesus. No, you've got to take responsibility for yourself. But I think we also let the pendulum swing this way. We are so earthly-minded, we are no heavenly good. We're so fearful that we're going to be so heavenly-minded, we'll be no earthly good. Friends, we need to be more heavenly-minded than ever before because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You want to see every chair in this place filled with people who don't know Christ? That evangelism starts with us to equip you, but it starts with you joining with us as pastors to go out and share it wherever you are. It starts with y'all. We have a relationship, a promise. We know the Lord. What greater thing? Last thing is this, the promise of redemption. Look at verses 12 and 13, the promise of redemption. He says in verse 12, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Whoa, 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 whoa. Does God have Alzheimer's, dementia? Is he having some kind of brain lapse here? Yes and no. What does it mean that God remembers our sins no more? Have you ever thought about this before? It's also quoted in Hebrews 10. We won't go there. I mean, how does it mean that God, who's all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere, how does he forget? I mean, if God can forget anything, he would cease to be God, right? Well, the phrase, remember no more, literally means he holds them no more against us. God doesn't hold over your head all the terrible things you thought, done, considered, pondered, whatever, said. God recalls what we've done, but he does not hold it against us. In Christ, when he said it is finished and all the wrath of God was poured on him, God remembers no more. He deals with us on the basis of grace and mercy, not on law and merit. Once sin has been forgiven, it's never brought before us again. It is considered settled. You see all these things on TV and social media where they sign one of those, uh, I'm going to get corrected by our lawyers here, uh, it's an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. Like something bad happened and they don't want to talk about it, so they have you sign your life away. You know some churches today are having their pastors sign those so the church name does not look bad? Whatever. But you know what? Even if your sins were signed in a non-disclosure agreement to be known by anyone, God still knows them. And you know what he did with that non-disclosure agreement? Right down the middle. He doesn't care because he sees Christ now. And that's what you have. The promise of redemption. You know, it's kind of like sometimes when we have a counseling situation and we have someone, I've heard people say, well, I can forgive, but boy, golly, I cannot forget, Pastor. You ever said that before? And the response is usually, of course you won't forget. The more you try to put this thing out of your mind, the more it comes in. The more you say, I don't want that donut, I don't want that donut, I don't want the, oh, no. you go Homer Simpson on the donut. <laughs> but that isn't what it means to forget. To forget means not hold it against the person who's wronged you. It means that we may remember what others have done, but we don't treat them as though they, we treat them rather as though they never did it. Do you see that? How is that possible? Spiritually, It's possible because on the cross there is a God who treated his son as though he had done it. But he looks at us as though we never did it. Does that make sense? Andy, if you'll put up the last piece. But be careful. 
Our experience of forgiveness from God makes it possible for us to forgive others. But Satan not only tempts us to remember our sin, but to forget the cross. I guess as a church, maybe as a pastoral staff, we're one of those old fuddy-duddy churches. We believe there is a literal spirit being named Satan. He doesn't walk around with little pitchfork ears and a red pitchfork and a, a, a triangle diamond tail. But he's real. And he would like nothing more than for our church, our individual Christians in this church, to say, well, did God really forgive you? Are you sure you're forgiven? Because you just did a terrible thing. Are you sure God can forgive that? And every time that temptation comes, you look back at that cross and you say, Satan, you're right. Terrible thing. And I may have to pay the consequences here on the earth for whatever that is, but it's been nailed to that cross. My lawyer, Jesus, is better than any call 777-7777. There's strength in our numbers. 523-8200. Ruben's case, Ruben's. Call me on number nine if you're a a Kansas City person, you've heard that a million times. I don't care who your lawyer is. He's got nothing to the advocate, Jesus Christ, who took that cross and said it's done, and we rest there. Do you see why the new covenant is better than the old? It's not because you've done anything better or I've done anything better, because Jesus did it once and for all on that cross, and it's done. It's done. Verse 13. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Aren't you grateful that by faith you're saved, not of yourselves, but as a gift of God? We pray for you as we close out today. We're going to do our last song here in just a minute. And after we do our last song, we will uh, go to the Lord's Supper. But I just want to encourage you this morning. You may have brought sin in your mind or your heart or your actions this week. Uh, whatever has done, I want to remind you, church, this morning, that there is no sin so big that Christ cannot forgive. If you're not a Christian here today, I want to encourage you that you have not sinned so much that God will look at you and say, ah, you're too bad. He'll take you in. If you have any desire to be with Christ and to be forgiven of your sin, that is a God-given gift of faith. Turn to Him, repent of your sin, and trust in Him. His promises are better, always. In Him, the Scripture says, all the promises are yes and amen. Let's pray together. Fathers, we continue to worship. We thank you for the fact that your grace is greater than our sin. And we thank you, Lord, that in Christ we know we are forgiven of all our sin because and only because of Jesus. Father, forgive us if we try and showboat, lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, try and do this in our own strength. Forgive us, Lord, if we have forgotten the immense price that was paid by your Son. Forgive us, Lord, as a church, if we have not sought to share that gospel message more intentionally and directly as a church here in this neighborhood, but also wherever we may live. But, Father, we are so grateful that wherever we are, whatever we bring, whatever junk we lay before you, you just burn it up like chaff and say, I remember no more. Thank you, Lord. As we close out today with the song and word supper, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand together once again for our final song of worship. Just ask the Lord to help you prepare.